You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Dr. Matt Bernholtz. I'm joined today by Dr. Sarah Kilpatrick. She's chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and associate dean of faculty development at Cedars-Sinai Health Center. Dr. Kilpatrick is giving a lecture titled Maternal Morbidity and Mortality in the U.S., Time to Wake Up and Take the Lead. Dr. Kilpatrick, welcome to the channel. Thank you very much. So why don't we start with the title of your program. What inspired the title, and what is this call to action that you're moving forward? It seems intuitive right from the look of it. Take us through it a little bit. Surprisingly, the maternal mortality rate in the United States fell, well, not surprisingly, it fell dramatically until about the 1980s. And then it sort of stayed stable, and people were really complacent about this stability and, and thought, oh, we're doing okay, but it never went down further. And then recently, in the 2000s, since 1999, actually, maternal mortality has actually increased in the United States. And along with maternal mortality, severe maternal morbidity has also increased. And the problem with this is, of course, we have probably the most healthcare resources of any country in the world, and yet our maternal mortality and severe morbidity is going up. And other countries that are similar to us, that have similar types of socioeconomic status, theirs is going down. So that's why it's time we need to wake up and look at this and do something about it. Now, why don't you help define for our listeners what maternal morbidity is? We are really referring to a term called severe maternal morbidity. It refers to women who get very sick during pregnancy, during delivery, or postpartum, but they don't die, but they get extremely ill. And the issue for us is we know that there are 50 times more women who have severe maternal morbidity than who die. Only about 600 women a year die in the United States, which is not a huge number. It's too high and it's going up, but it's hard to get excited about that small a number. But there are 50 times more women, at least 50 times more, who have this severe maternal morbidity. And what we believe is that the woman who gets really sick but doesn't die is very similar to the woman who dies. And if we could study this larger group of women, we would have more opportunity to discover data and evidence-based data that could help direct our actions to reduce severe maternal morbidity. Let me give you a couple examples of severe maternal morbidity. So the, the person who has a stroke in pregnancy, the person who has develops renal failure, the person who develops eclampsia, which is a seizure related to the disease of preeclampsia, the person who has a major hemorrhage requiring multiple units of blood transfused, the woman who ends up with a hysterectomy. So these are things that happen to, to more than 50,000 women a year in the United States, and so we need to study these women. The other thing that's important is 50% or more of maternal deaths in the United States are actually preventable which is really shocking. And we also know that there's a study done by my group that looked at women who had, were very, very ill but did not die. And it turns out we had about the same percentage of those women had preventable issues around their care. So we can make the conclusion then that studying these women who are severely ill but don't die are similar to the women who die. And we can learn more by studying more women. And then the final point I'd like to make on this concept of severe maternal morbidity, we, a multidisciplinary group, are calling for every obstetric hospital in the United States to review all of their women who have been identified to have severe maternal morbidity. And to help them identify those women, we are strongly suggesting that they review all women who get admitted to an intensive care unit during pregnancy, during their delivery, postpartum, or are transfused four or more units of blood products because using those two criteria, which are fairly simple to identify in an electronic medical record, you will identify the majority, if not all, those women who are severely ill. And by identifying them, you hope to create a better picture nationwide for just what the incidence prevalence is of this, of this problem? Even more than that, by identifying them first, then the next step is to actually review those cases. Mm -hmm. And you review them in your own setting, in your own hospital, 
and re review them with a multidisciplinary team who asked the question, could care have been better? Could we have improved outcome? It's not about pointing fingers and finding a bad person or a bad doctor or a bad nurse. It's about looking at the system, looking at the full approach of care, her prenatal care, her care in the hospital. Was there something that could have been done better? In some of these cases, the answer will be no. It was great care. In many other cases, though, you will learn something that could have been done better that we could then change. Perhaps having a hemorrhage kit available. Perhaps having a process available about identifying how you treat a woman who has severe hypertension, for example. Ultimately, it would be nice to, to less these cases within systems, between systems, of course, de-identified to look for major trends. It's sort of like a nationwide M&M conference, as <laughs> it were. Help me understand then, because I think a number of our listeners are hearing this. They're hearing about this disparity between our country's resources and our country's ability to not only identify but address maternal morbidity and mortality. How does that disparity exist when we think about the specific factors that you mentioned that are accounted within maternal morbidity, such as stroke, renal failure, uh, eclampsia, major hemorrhaging. We have treatment algorithms for all those things, and we could hazard to say that U.S. practices, treatment algorithms are better than most as far as being addressed each of those selective problems in pregnancy and labor. Why do we have such a high prevalence of maternal morbidity and maternal uh, mortality yeah, given that? Yeah, ACOG has done a tremendous job in putting out practice bulletins and committee opinions to help guide the practitioner. However, it's not until recently they have called for more specific guidelines to deal with emergencies, for example. And it really has just happened in the last year or two, and, and that will be part of the talk today, what has been done recently. And interestingly, most of the guidelines, which have been tremendous, have focused on less emergent issues. And so there's been less of a consensus across hospitals about how to, for example, to manage severe hypertension, what blood pressure should be treated, what medications should be used. That came out recently. There's also been a new awareness in obstetrics that, of course, similar to the airline industry, having checklists and doing things in a similar fashion within a system is safer than having each individual doctor do it their way. And what's difficult in medicine is sometimes we don't have the data that proves one way is better than another way. But what we are now know is that if a system does it all in the same way, even if that way is not necessarily better than way B, but if everyone's doing it in the same way and everybody's on the same path with communication, the woman gets better care. And I think that's particularly evident in the emergencies that happen in obstetrics, which happen to be fast. So a hemorrhage can happen without any, any um, pre-existing risk. And all of a sudden, you have a major hemorrhage. Unless you have a system to follow, who's going to call for blood? How is it going to get there? What blood product is she going to get? Unless you have that system set up, the woman doesn't do as well. Now, that's just beginning to happen in obstetrics in the mm. last couple of years, which is really great and what we'd like to see more of. Do you think it's been too much of a long time coming? Did it strike you as something that you would have expected in your profession to have been around for some time? It seems very intuitive. It does seem intuitive. And I think this goes back to the issue that because the absolute number of deaths was small, and if you think 500, 600 deaths, a year, that means any individual doctor or any individual hospital doesn't see very many. Mm. And it's very hard to build a burning platform around something that you don't see very often. And so I think people were a little bit blasé about that risk. And it's not until you add the concept of severe maternal morbidity to this analogy people are now using is what's below the iceberg. What's below the tip of the iceberg is a huge number of women below there. And then people begin to say, yes, yeah, we see those sick women. And yes, we would like better ways to manage them. And that's what's pushing this forward now. Hmm. And, of course, the issue that none of us in the U.S. want to see this number of deaths continuing to increase. But we need to speak with a, a united voice on this. If you're just tuning in, you're
you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm talking with Dr. Sarah Kilpatrick. She's chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and associate dean of faculty development at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. We're talking about maternal morbidity and mortality in the U.S., and as she puts it, time to wake up and take the lead. A number of the things we talked about regarding checklists and new guidelines are centered on, understandably, the more acute issues that come up, acute organ failures, hemorrhaging, and and strokes and whatnot. But what about more preventative care-oriented guidelines? Where does that fit in? That's another great point. Of course, not all deaths are preventable by improving the acute care of the woman. And there are some factors that have increased a lot in the United States, including women are older who are getting pregnant. So the average age of women getting pregnant now is older than it used to be. So older women come to pregnancy with other underlying medical problems, so that makes their pregnancy higher risk. Our obesity rate in this country has increased dramatically, and there's no doubt that obese women have higher risks in pregnancy of pretty much all the complications you can think of, including death. And our C-section rate in the United States has dramatically increased. The women who have a C-section now almost all get a repeat section, and the multiple cesarean sections lead to increased risk of hemorrhage, placenta accreta, and hysterectomy. So those are factors that are not related to the absolute care, but are related to factors around the patient. The preventable question becomes, how can we reduce obesity? How can we encourage women not to have an unnecessary cesarean section? So there's a patient education factor here that still has a lot of room for improvement. And of course, the obesity epidemic, which is across the world, but pretty dramatic in the United States, really is screaming for help at the childhood age. We as obstetric providers do see women for a long period of time in their pregnancy, and that's the time to educate them, but it's not the time to have them lose weight. And you bring up an important side point, which is there are a number of social determinants to maternal morbidity and mortality. What are some of the other social determinants that you've you've come across in your practice? Yeah, unfortunately, one of the very disparaging issues about maternal morbidity and mortality is there's a tremendous disparity, and African-American women are essentially fourfold higher risk of death and severe maternal morbidity compared to Asian, Hispanic, and white women. So in California, for example, in about 2008-ish, the risk of death for an African-American woman was in the 40s out of 100,000, while the risk was in 10 for Asian, Hispanic, and white women. Mm. So this is a disparity that runs through all of our healthcare outcomes in obstetrics and other aspects, but it's very complex and, and needs a lot of attention, and no one has really been able to grasp how to fix that. We like to create the distinction between first world and developing yes. world, but it creates the impression of a spectrum of developing to first world within our own country which a number of people are naive to say doesn't exist, but the the numbers are there. Right, and there is a complex issue. There are access to care care issue, other issues that are very difficult to deal with, that we need to deal with. Of course. Dr. Kilpatrick, before we wrap up this discussion today, any wrap-up thoughts, uh, concluding ideas that you just want to be able to impart to our listeners on this important subject? Probably the most important thing is it is really time for us to focus on the woman. The United States has spent a lot of time focusing on the fetus, and we have tremendous fetal care, but it's time really just to focus on the woman and to help make her obstetric care the safest as possible and reduce the severe morbidities and deaths. And what will be next on your agenda to help address that over at Cedars-Sinai? Yes, at Cedars-Sinai. We have a very large delivery service there, and and we are working very hard to implement guidelines using simulation, for example, simulation training for hemorrhage management and shoulder dystocia management and educating our team. And I think the other important point is this is not a one-person effort. You have to have very good communication with your team, which includes nurses, midwives, OBGYN doctors, maternal fetal medicine specialists, OB anesthesiologists, and in some cases, is emergency room doctors and ICU doctors. So the team approach is really critical to understanding the pregnant patient and her path 
through it's the safe labor. It certainly makes sense, and we're hearing more and more of that coming onto the scene for every subspecialty and specialty in general practice. Yes. The idea that team functioning in this day and age seems to serve patients far better than yes. the standard old guard solo approach. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, Dr. Kilpatrick, it's been a pleasure having you on the channel with us today. I've been speaking with Dr. Sarah Kilpatrick. She's chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Associate Dean of Faculty Development at Cedars-Sinai Health Center. Again, Dr. Kilpatrick, thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. For access to this podcast or any others in our library, please visit ReachMD.com. And thanks for listening. 